The Beat Church, bringing you messages of inspiration, hope, and freedom. Turn up the volume and get ready for the truth that will set you free. All right, happy Easter. Uh, I do want to, uh, I do want to just mention. I found out this morning during prayer, um, our early prayer, that this is actually the 17th year of Connie's Garage. Uh, Pastor Art's mom, he's sitting back here. Pastor Art's mom started that as a single mom to serve single moms, and so we are 17 years into that now, and it's gone from. Uh, where it was at, and it's just moved forward, and uh, the church has transitioned, but Connie's Garage is still here, and we're still serving single moms, and we'll be partnering on that with them, and also with AOA Boxing over here, doing that together, and it's just going to be an awesome time to serve uh, people that really God wants to touch, the moms and the kids, so that's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm going to do my sermon, but I want to start off with a really good joke. Uh, my brother is in San Diego uh, area, Temecula, and he is starting to do stand-up comedy, um, he is a, a preacher, but he also is doing it on the side, stand-up comedy. So I want to give a shot here and try it on an awesome joke that I heard yesterday. Did you know that Satan is a snake? He has no arms and no feet. You know why? Because he's been disarmed and defeated. It works, Lucas. It works. I would like to give credit to my writer over here, uh, Lucas. He is the writer of all my jokes. Uh, but um, that was my uh, only one, so I'm done. I'm going to preach. <laughs> Hallelujah. Stand-up comedy. I just want my brother to know that I got a, the whole house was in an in a uproar about it. It's amazing. Um, when you have an older brother, you have to be able to show him that you can still run with him. Uh, all right, let's pray. Father, we just pray as we get into this word, Lord, that you will help us to, uh, God, just hear it. Hear what you have to say to us. Lord, this is your day. God, Easter is your day. Lord, you have risen. Lord, you've risen indeed, and we pray, God, that you would be able to uh, hear us, Lord, as we, uh, as we seek you, and that also we would be able to hear your voice. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I got to make sure I can get this thing up. Am I up? Ta-da! This is our first time doing it today. Okay. Good. Wow, things are going good. All right. We are actually going to do Easter differently. I'm not going to regularly preach. What we're actually going to do is I'm going to preach while reading the word. And so we're actually going to go through Luke chapter 23 and the beginning of Luke chapter 24. That's why it's up here. Uh, We're just going to go right through the Bible because we are talking about him being risen. But him being risen required first for him to actually die. And so why did he die? What happened? We're actually going to walk through the trial of Jesus. And some of you maybe have already read this. Some of you already know it. Some of you may not. Uh, But we're going to find out today kind of what that looked like as he went through the trial. And we're picking up at the beginning of Luke uh, chapter 23. But what's already happened is that he's already healed the sick. He's already set people free. He's already loved on people. He's already done all these things and lived this life. And in the end of it, when he should be getting glory and excitement for that and everybody loves him and everybody's wonderful, what actually happened was that he was uh, betrayed by Judas, one of his closest disciples. People in his inner circle betrayed him. He was abandoned by his friend Peter already who is somebody that he had invested his life and time in, and he had already been turned over by the religious people to be persecuted and to be killed, and even the other people that he had healed and helped had even joined in and were wanting him uh, to be crucified as we go on here. So he had done all these things and yet finds himself abandoned and alone and on trial. 
Has anybody else ever experienced that where you feel like you try to do a lot of good and you wound up abandoned, alone, and on trial? Right? So he can empathize. The Bible says in Hebrews that he can empathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted and he's been through the things that we've been through. But this is the story that leads up to Easter. So I'm just going to read and I'll break it down a little bit as we go. But starting off in here, verse 1, it says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Pilate was the, the ruler of that area, that region, and also that made him the judge of what to do. It says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be the Messiah and the king. And so you see right here, that's what it's talking about. That's a false accusation. Anybody ever been under a false accusation? That's a false accusation because if you actually read the New Testament, somebody comes and says, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. He looks at it, and then he says, you know what? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. So he actually said, go ahead and pay your taxes. But here he's on trial. He's facing the death penalty, and part of it is for just totally false accusation. And he's heading to this uh, suffering that he's going to. He's heading to this cross. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is another thing that's being talked about. And so he just actually said, well, you've said that. He's just saying very calm, very, like, I'm not here to be a part of the show. If you guys are here, you have your mind set up. I'm, I know where I'm going. So I'm not going to try to defend myself. I'm not trying to get out. Now, this is Jesus. This is God from heaven in the flesh. At any point along the way, he could get out. He could just fly out. He could disappear out. He could walk out. He could lift up his hands and have everybody fall down. He could, do whatever. He could just get out. But he's willingly going through the steps of heading towards the cross, heading towards the suffering. Why? Well, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his son. In giving his son, he gave him unto death. Why? Because we, as humanity, have a debt owed. We owe a debt for our sin. We owe a debt for our rebellion against God, our rejection of God. And so somebody had to pay it, and it was going to be us, but Jesus comes down to do it. So here he's in that opportunity to pay it. He's about to walk through this thing, and he's not looking to get out. He's looking to go through it. And we get to the end of this message, I'm going to give you guys a chance to receive what Christ has done for you, to receive his death and his resurrection, and to understand what it is and to give your life to him as both your Savior and your Lord. And maybe you're not there right now, but I'm praying that as we go through this word, that as we plant this seed, that God's going to cause it to increase. And you have revelation and understanding of what God said. Maybe you've been in church, but you really don't know God. You've never received it. You know, a lot of people go to church on Easter. And they don't really know God, and they don't come the rest of the time. And that's okay, because God came to die for all of us. And so you're here for a reason. I'm going to believe that God's going to touch your life as we, as we go through this passage. It says, Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, he says, I find no basis for charge against this man. He's not rebellious. He's not loud. He's not trying to overthrow us. He just said, I don't find a reason for this. And so Pilate announced this, and he says, but they insisted. He stirs up all the people of Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, because he heard that, and he goes, oh, this is my out. They mentioned Galilee, that he started there, and he goes, oh, okay, maybe he's a Galilean. He said, I'm going to send him somewhere else. And so he actually then uh, sends him over to Herod, and Herod now picks him up, because he sends him to a different place to be judged, because Pilate thinks he's innocent and doesn't want to be involved. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been waiting to see him. Some people are waiting to see God. They're like, God, if you just show yourself to me. God, if you just revealed yourself to me. God, if you just let me see that you're real and see that you're true. But some people like Herod are doing that not because they're sincere, not because they actually want to know God. They're doing it for this reason right here. It says for what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some sort of signs. He just wanted to see him do something. 
Man, God, show me something. Show me how cool it is. Like, I've got power. I've got authority. I run this city. I run this area. But I want to see something cool, man. I've heard that he does stuff. I've heard that he turns water into wine. I've heard, I heard that he does this thing and does that thing. Like, I want to come, and I want to actually see this stuff with my own eyes. And so here comes Jesus, and he's going to take a look at that, and he wants to see what he does. But there's no sincere heart. There's no repentance. There's no care for God. And sometimes we do that. We come to church for that reason. We go to other things that are religious. We go to like a worship night at an at a, uh, auditorium somewhere or different things. Like, I just want to see God. I just want to see if God moves. I just want to see if God does something. But we don't actually know God and we don't necessarily have a desire for him. This is what he's facing. This is what he's looking at. So as the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. They're still attacking him. Who's attacking him? Religious people. That's who's attacking him. It's the religious. And they're after him. It says, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. They just begin to mock him. They begin to, to put him down. And here he's just going through the process of this trial for sin that's not even his. He's putting himself on something of ridicule. Does that happen today? Of course it happens. You can see it all over. It's all over our culture. Even musicians, they put crosses in the back of all their stuff while wearing demon suits and wearing devil suits and doing all these things. And... At the same time, people just love to mock. And oftentimes we can even do it in our own lives. We'll be mocking Jesus. People will be talking about that and not really giving him glory or giving him praise. And so here they are. They dress him up. So you want to be a king? We're going to dress you up and have you look good. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies, people uniting against God, uniting against God's purpose, uniting against who he is and doing that. And so Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one was inciting the people to rebellion. He said, I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. So again, he's like, this guy's innocent. There's nothing at all that he should be guilty of, and neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see, as he's done nothing to deserve death, therefore I'll punish him and release him. He's like, you know what, you guys want to see some punishment? I'm going to give him punishment, and I'm going to send him out. That's what I'm going to do. But I'm not going to kill him. But here's what the people's answer was. The whole crowd shouted, not just the leaders now, but all the people are in a frenzy. Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Who's Barabbas? This is Barabbas who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Now, why would people want Barabbas to be freed and not Jesus? Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus was serving. He was doing good. He was loving others. Why would he want to see Barabbas released and not see Jesus released? Why would people be shouting for that? If Jesus is released, right, how do we look standing next to Jesus? How do we look standing next to perfection? How do we look standing next to holiness? How do we look standing next to somebody who's actually doing good, loving others and caring for others? We look pretty bad. Even the best of us can look pretty bad. We're next to somebody that's really serving, really loving from a pure heart and from a pure conscience, forgiving, caring for others, all these things. If Barabbas is released... Well, we all look pretty good standing next to a murderer. People didn't want the conviction. They didn't want to, to walk with and stand next to and be near Jesus, the perfect example, the light that came into the world because it exposed their own darkness. They would rather have Barabbas come out because then everybody can feel good about themselves. But Jesus didn't come down because we were good. He came down because he's good. He came down because he loves us, because he wanted to show mercy, he wanted to show grace, he wanted to pour out his life on us. And so the whole crowd shouts this and says, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed again. He doesn't want this on his head, he knows that he's innocent. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We see that today, our culture is constantly wanting to kill God. 
There's books written, God is dead. People want him gone, they want him out, and yet he just continues to persist. He continues to be here because you can't kill God. You can't leave God dead. People are, are seeking and they, they want him out. Why? Because it's a constant reminder that we are not God. No matter what we do, no matter what we choose, no matter what freedom we want, no matter what we want to say, no matter any of those things, there's this constant reminder that, you know what? We are not really God. We can do the law of attraction and try to attract and make the good things in our lives. We can try to like, fix everything ourselves. We can try to like, manifest everything. We can try to be our own creator. We can try to be our own God. We can try to be our own things. But you know what? Ultimately, we just aren't. And there's a humility required. There's a humbleness required. It's the same thing that went back to Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. That was the temptation of the devil. And so they want him gone. They want him dead. Why? So they can take the role of the own authority in their life. For the third time, he spoke to them. He says, why? What crime has this man committed? I found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'm going to punish him and release him. He's saying the same thing. And people are calling out, and they want him to be gone. But with loud shouts, they demanded. And so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one that they asked for, and they surrendered Jesus to their will. Again, we see that in our culture. Our culture would have chaos, death, hatred, division, all the things going on, school shootings, I mean, all the stuff. But forbid that God is in the schools or forget that God is in our lives. We don't want any of that. We would rather take all the disaster, all the chaos. The same thing, we'd rather have Barabbas. We'd rather have death. We'd rather have this. We don't want God. We see it. We see it played out today, the same as it was played out then. And so he surrendered Jesus to their will. And as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country. And they put a cross on him, and they made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. People were crying out for the injustice that was happening. But Simon specifically... This is Simon the Cyrene. He's going along and he's watching all this stuff happen and they grab him and they... Some of us, maybe somebody in this room, you never really picked up your cross to follow Jesus. You didn't willfully choose to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You didn't make a decision to follow the Lord. Somebody else just put it on you. Somebody else just said, you know what, you're coming to church. You're going every week. Maybe your wife said, you know what, you're going to carry this thing. You're coming with me. We're going to be a church family. Maybe your parents said, you know, you're going to be a we're a church family. You're coming to church. This is what we do. This is how we live. And they put a cross on you. They said, you're going to do this. You're following Jesus because I'm following Jesus. This is the direction we're going. But it's not willful. It's not your choice. You haven't made a decision. Jesus said that those who are going to follow him will need to pick up their cross and follow. It's a willful choice that we pick it up. And we say, you know, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to let some of my own self die. I'm going to let some of my own self go away. And as the soldiers led him away and they got Cyrus and he puts the cross on, Jesus finally speaks. And here's what he says. This is very interesting. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He's literally been brutalized, mocked, turned over for things that aren't his own sin, his own problem. And what is he, when he finally speaks, it's not in defense of himself. When he finally speaks, he looks at the women that are mourning as he goes through, and he says, don't weep for me. Why? Because he's still not even concerned about himself. He's concerned about others. He's concerned about the well-being and the future and the life of others. He says, daughter of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when they will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. 
For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's saying, if they'll do this while God walks among them, what will they do when I leave? Is that he was looking ahead at all of the things. You say, does God even see my suffering? Does God even know what I've been through? Does God know that I was molested? Does God know that I was abused? Does God know that, that I was abandoned? Does God know that all these things have happened? Does God know I've gone through suffering? Yes, Jesus literally in the, in the depths of his suffering, in the, in the, not, not afterwards when you could think about it, in the depths of the excruciating suffering of the cross and the accusation and the abandonment and everything else, he was at that time looking ahead and saying, I see your suffering. I already see that's happening. Don't look at me. I chose this to deliver you, but I already see it. Pray for them. Weep for them. Comfort them. Love them. He's already looking. God saw everything that you've been through. And he cared. And it was his motivation to continue down this road towards the cross, to keep walking this trail, to keep moving forward. Verse 32, it says, to other men, both criminals were also let out with him to be executed. Now, these are guys that deserved it, coming along. When they came to the place called the school, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is the second time he speaks. After being judged and being sentenced. And it's to do what? It's to still offer forgiveness. He's still saying, forgive them. They don't know what to do. Did they know what they're doing? Well, sure. People, they cried out. They knew what crucifixion was. They cried out for him to be crucified. The sense that they didn't know what they're doing is the sense that they, they can't even fathom or understand the, the amount of love that God has for them. They can't understand or fathom why he wants them close, that he wants to rescue them, that he wants to save them, that he wants to restore them, that he wants to deliver them. They can't even get their head around it. And part of the reason why, by the way, is because even the ones that knew about God, they had grown up just being taught about the rules, 613 commandments. Always another commandment being added. Always another commandment being added. So their idea of this, well, God coming to love them, care for them, die for them, lift them up, build them up, have a, have a purpose and a destiny for them, want them to become his children, want to love them, give them an inheritance. They had no concept for that. And so in their mind, if they're putting this to death, they're not even fully understanding. They have no way to comprehend. We are believers after the cross, after the resurrection, and we still honestly can't even fathom. Paul prays in Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know the hope, that you may know the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for you. He's talking to people that are, are close to the resurrection. They already know what Jesus has done. They know he's risen. And he's looking at them saying, you don't even have a clue. You have no idea about the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for you. And he's just praying for them to understand. They're already believers. They've already experienced God's love. Like, this is amazing. And he's like, you don't even have a clue. It's so much more. It's so much bigger. It's so much deeper. Why do you think we need eternity? There's so much goodness in God. There's so much love in God. There's so much greatness in God. It'll take us eternity to even explore it. We can't receive it all here. And he's praying this for them. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. As he's forgiving them, they're selling off his clothes as souvenirs for killing him. And the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. 
And they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. I used to actually pray, I used to say that to God. Back before I came to church. Back before a friend brought me in the back of his car, passed out drunk, said, this guy needs Jesus. I would say, I was so mad at God, so angry. I said, God, if you're real, you want, you show me. You save me. You show yourself. Save your own reputation. Save your, save your own name. I don't have to believe. You show me that you're real, and then you save me. You do something. I was the same mocker. Most of us have been. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine, vinegar, and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the other criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. He's getting it from the ground. He's getting it from the crosses next to him. Even the criminals, even the other people in their death have nothing for him but mockery. Even the worst of the worst. Have you ever felt you were low and then somebody that you thought was lower comes over and insults you? You ask them, you text them for a call or you call them or you see if they want to go see a movie and even they're like, nope. That's low. This is where Jesus is at. Completely low. At the bottom. But then the other criminal speaks up and rebukes him. He says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. Like, we deserve this. This is our penalty that he's paying. We we all deserve this. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. How would he know that? How would that guy know that? You could tell an innocent person when they go through persecution. You could tell by their reaction, truly innocent person. They stay at peace. They stay right. They don't need to defend themselves. They don't need to fight it out. Why? Because they're innocent. And just move forward. And he could see this on him. He could see that he was innocent. He could see that he still loved others. He could hear him forgiving people as he's bleeding next to him. He can hear him crying out for forgiveness. He can hear him still loving. He can see this is genuine. This is from the heart. This guy's done nothing wrong. And then Jesus said this. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or this is what he said to Jesus. This was Jesus' answer. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what's missing from that statement? Can I come? He identified that Jesus was legit. This is real. He's on a cross. He's dying next to me. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this guy's getting down. This guy's getting up, and this guy's going to have a kingdom. He understood. He saw it. But he dared not even ask to come. He dared not even ask to be raised up with him. He dared not even ask to be brought in. All he said was, just remember me. That's it. Just remember. That's the humility that we all should have as we come to the Lord. We have no way in. Alistair Begg's a preacher that I like to listen to sometimes. He tells a story of the thief on the cross, and he says one minute he's hanging on the cross. He looks over, and he says, remember me. And the next minute, he's standing in front of the gates of heaven, and he's standing at the gate, and the big security angels are standing up there, and they're looking at him, and they see this guy bloody and beaten, and the thief, and he's standing there, and they're looking at him, and they're like, what are you doing here? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. 
I'm here. They said, what qualifies you to get in? How can you get in here? I don't see. He said, I don't know. One minute I was talking and the man on the middle cross said to come. He said to come. And that was his only qualification. He didn't have a chance to get off the cross and do something good. He didn't have the chance to fix his life. He didn't have the chance to go to Bible college. He didn't have the chance to make amends. He didn't have the chance to do anything to prove himself. The Bible says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all he did. Imagine his amazement. Just imagine being him, a thief. You have lived a bad life. You've done nothing good or worthwhile. You've been judged, mocked, finally in prison. Now you're standing there, and now you're on a cross. And you're dying, a criminal's death. And you look over, and you see somebody, you're like, this is real, this is God. Just remember me. And literally, within hours, you're dead. Suddenly everything's black and then just just explosions of love and light. You're standing in a place, you're like, I have no idea where I'm at right now. How shocking. How amazing. That's how God's love works in our life. You might be in depression. You might be going through isolation. It might have taken everything you could get just to show up at church today. You might not have a lot of hope, but you're like, you know, I'm just going to show up. Maybe God will see me. Maybe God will remember me. God's desire is not to just remember you. God's desire is to be with you. That's what he died for. It's so that he could restore relationships, so that he could have reconciliation. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. What curtain? What tore? What happened? Well, in the Old Testament, they had a temple and in that temple, it would be like this huge curtain blocking off a certain area, and that area was the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go in there unless you had lived perfectly and you had cleansed yourself of your sins and you'd gone through all these things just to get behind the curtain. And they would actually tie bells onto the priests, and then they would tie a rope onto them, and they would let them walk into there. And when they got in there, if they weren't clean, they died just like that, boom. And they fell. And what were the bells for? Because when you heard them ring and jingle, that means somebody just fell down and died. And what was the rope for? It was to pull them back out. <laughs> because walking into the presence of God was a fearful thing and a holy thing because you're walking into the, the place of perfection. You're walking into all holiness where sin has no place. When Jesus dies, this curtain literally just on its own by the Spirit of God just rips from floor to ceiling, totally gone, rips apart and opens. What does it mean? It means that what Jesus did justified us. It made us clean and took away the separation between us and God, not because of our work, not because of what we've done, not because we've been clean and sober long enough, not because we've made enough amends, not because we've done enough things right, not because we wore a nice enough outfit on Easter Sunday. 
but because Jesus paid the price and it split the veil and opened an opportunity to come into his presence. And that's why he died. He didn't come to earth to die, just to die. He came to die for us, to open up this relationship. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. They're proud of themselves. We've killed God. We've taken him out. He's no longer a part of our community. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. People were watching in awe. So a man named Joseph comes and gives him his tomb and says, let's bury him in his tomb. They bury him. They put him away. In Luke chapter 24, it says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they prepared and they went to the tomb. Now, this was the first day of the week. The end of chapter, the end of chapter 23 says that he died right before the Sabbath, and then it goes into this. Why right before the Sabbath? Well, part of that, I believe, is God's plan, is that Christ's death is supposed to give us rest. It's supposed to give us rest from trying to strive and perfect ourselves and make ourselves the perfect person, try to live up to God. He dies, and then the Sabbath. And after the Sabbath is Luke 24. They come to put this on him. It says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Go through this whole thing. They come to just put spices on his body and to care for his dead body and to just honor him, and they see he's gone. Even they hadn't understood what was gonna happen. You see, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. They were looking for a dead God. They were looking for a dead Jesus. And they went and found an empty tomb. He said, why are you even looking for the living among the dead? God is not meant to be dead. God is not meant to just be a religious thing that we come and do on a Sunday. He's not meant to just be a box that we check off with a weekly and daily Bible study. He's not meant to just be something that we check off by living things out and just doing everything right the right way. God is meant to be experienced for the living, relational, loving God that he is. And when we look for him among the dead, when we look for him just among even the rituals and the actions and the activities of faith, we can miss him. He wants to know you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to heal you. He wants to touch those areas of your heart that are untouchable. He wants to be involved in your marriage. He wants to be involved in your family. He wants to be involved in your depression. He wants to be involved in all the things in your life. He wants you to open up, talk to him, engage with him, and allow him to come in and to work in those things because he loves you. And he's risen. We have people all over this church. We did this a couple years ago. We didn't do it this year. We may do it again someday, but we did a whole Easter service on proof of life. We had like 30 testimonies in like 40 minutes. We just had people coming up, like one minute testimonies. One, 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 freedom from addiction, restored marriages, freedom from depression. People set into family and into relationship that didn't have it. We got people in this room right now, and I'm not going to give away people's secrets, but this front row is mostly filled. Front row. That's not an accident. Front row is mostly filled with people that have crazy background stories. 
Right? Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Crazy background stories. Why front row? Jesus doesn't have a back row. He invites everybody in to be just as close to him as the next person. And he's inviting you today. Let's close our eyes and pray. If you're here today and you said, you know what, man, I, I want to know the Lord. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want this relationship. The Bible says everyone has sinned. Everyone's fallen short of God. The wages of sin is death. You've already experienced death. Well, I don't know if that's true. you already experienced it. It's all over our culture. Death of relationships, death of hope, death of dreams, death of confidence. These are all just foreshadows of what one day will be death of eternal separation from God. Imagine life without God forever. No hope, no love, no joy, no forgiveness, because he's the source of all those things. When you take him out, what are you left with? But it says that the free gift of God is eternal life, and all those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said it this way. He said, unless a man is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. What is born again? We've born once in the body, but there's a second birth that happens is that when we give our life to the Lord and we say, you know what, I'll make you my Lord. I receive what you did for me on the cross. I receive your resurrection. I want a living relationship with you. When we do that, that he actually births a new heart in us. I used to be an introvert. I didn't like people. I was always angry. I didn't want our phone answered. I just started drinking first thing in the morning. I drink all the way through the night. That used to be me. Now I love people. I want to serve people. I want to be around people. I have joy. Why? Not because I got better. It's because I got a different heart. God just literally gave me a different heart. I didn't desire the things I desired before. I desired something new. And then I had to grow into it. It wasn't instant. I had to grow into it. I had to learn how to love. I had to learn how to care. I had to learn how to forgive. But at least I wanted to now. Like really wanted to. I got free from addiction, not because I was trying to get free from addiction, but because I, I wanted to be closer to God and be more like him. And so my addiction started getting smaller and smaller and smaller and fading away. Because his peace was greater, his love was greater, and that's where I wanted to go. It's a new heart. It's being born again. It matters in this life, but it matters in eternity even more because that's where we're going to spend a lot more time. If you're here today and say, I would like to give my life to the Lord, I'd like to receive what Jesus did. Today is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I'd just like you to raise your hand. I just want to pray with you. See one, two. Keep them up for a minute. See three, four. If you've given your life to the Lord, you know Peter had, had chosen to follow to follow Jesus and then he denied him and walked away. When he came back, Jesus received him back fully, made him a part of his church, part of his family again. If, you, if you've given your life to the Lord but you walked away, you're like, well, I walked away, I don't know if he wants me back or at least not on the inside, he just wants me on the edges. But you want to be on the inside with the Lord again. He wants to receive you. If that's you, just raise your hand so we can pray with you. I want to give my life back to the Lord. I want to walk with him. All right, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. We're going to pray together as a church and as a family. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, okay, but I am going to ask you to stand up.
That's outrageous. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Jesus hung on a cross. That's outrageous. There's nothing embarrassing about giving your life to the Lord, about being born again. When we had kids, I had four, and then we had a fifth one that we adopted. And do you know what? When people came to the room and they walked in and said, oh, is there somebody being born? We didn't say, oh, close your eyes. It's hideous. And they kind of are. They're purple. Their eyes are full of gunk. Their nose is yucky. They're screaming. There's this weird thing hanging off their belly. It's gross. But we're like, it's beautiful. Look. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Because new life is always beautiful. It's always beautiful. It's not just that God has risen from the dead, but he rose from the dead in order to bring other people out of the dead and into life. It's the first fruit. It's the first of many to be risen. If you raise your hand on either of those questions, just stand up. We're going to pray with you. We're not going to judge you because everybody's done that. Everybody's been there. Everybody's been there. Everybody's done that. Stand up. We're going to pray. Okay. Now I need a volunteer doctor to smack them and make them cry because that's what happens at the hospital. No. Okay, if you're by them, put your hands on them in a good, nice, appropriate manner somewhere. Shoulder, hand, don't make them uncomfortable and weird. We're just going to pray to receive them. As brothers and sisters in the Lord, God's building his family. We're just going to pray to receive them. We're going to pray. If you know them, if you're in your life with them, just know it's, it's, it's a new birth. You don't get born as an adult, so don't expect them to be perfect tomorrow. You're still not. Just agree to walk with them and to grow with them and to love them. Okay, if you stood up, this is how you pray. Just pray on your own words and just give your life to the Lord. There's no special words. Receive what Jesus did. Ask him for a new heart. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. I'm going to give you a minute to do that. It's between you and him. He doesn't want my words. He wants yours. And then we're just going to all pray over you. All right, now if you're with them, just begin to pray for them. If you feel like to pray out loud, go for it. And I'll pray as well. Lord, we just thank you for these uh, people, Lord, that have come, Lord, on Easter, God, not only to find that you've risen, but, Lord, to find that you want to bring them out of the tomb as well. Lord, you want to give them new life, new heart, new thoughts. Lord, there's God, we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for healing them. Lord, we thank you for uh, cleansing them, God, for justifying them. Lord, we thank you for giving them a new heart. We thank you for adding them to our family, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are good. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for bringing them into your family. And we receive them, Lord, as our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. the next step and visit www.thebeatchurch.com and get connected with a community committed to applying these truths in their everyday lives. You can also give now to support our messages by visiting www.thebeatchurch.com give.